And if you're saying that you know truth, if you're saying that you know what is truth, then you've got to have something to actually measure that against. Proverbs 18.10 Podcast 25 feet, a thousand layers. How many millions of years did that take to form them? The answer is it took three hours. Proverbs 18.10 Podcast This is the Proverbs 18.10 Podcast, presented by me, Paul Taylor, in association with Proverbs 18.10 Media. For all information about the podcast, including where to find the RSS feeds to put into your favorite podcasting software, please visit proverbs1810.org. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 59 of the Proverbs 1810 podcast. You're very welcome to join me. My name is Paul Taylor and this podcast is being brought to you by Proverbs 1810 Media. It's sponsored by allaboutbooks.store. That's allaboutbooks.store, the place for uh, books that they do not want you to read or to buy. Um, so let's get into the um, uh, into the show and... Uh, there's been a couple of news items which um, you know have really taken me back to the past lately and uh, I find that fascinating um, the first one I think I'll mention is uh, the death of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev now Mikhail Gorbachev was the last leader of the Soviet Union and by many people he is credited with uh, bringing about the end of the Soviet Union and Soviet style communism in fact, he never intended to do either of those things. Quite the opposite. He was hoping to strengthen communism by producing a non-Soviet um, style, well, a non-Leninist style. Um, but he, he also didn't intend uh, the Soviet Union to fall apart. But that was uh, the way things worked out. So... Um, you know, I remember an era of uh, Soviet leaders who were all exceptionally old. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev, um, who was the Soviet leader throughout my uh, teenage years, um, we sort of came to fear him. You, you thought he was, he was an old man. He always seemed to be an old man, but he also seemed to be somewhat unstable. And you thought, you know, he's going to set off a nuclear war at any point. And so the threat of nuclear war uh, is something that uh, we grew up with as uh, teenagers in the 1970s. And uh, while Brezhnev uh, struggled on as an old man, in fact, in his later years, it was often rumoured by people telling jokes that he was, in fact, clinically dead, but was basically being uh, manipulated by some sort of electronic puppetry. Uh, and uh, that was how they were keeping uh, the leader of... Uh, the um, arguably the second most powerful uh, nation on earth at that time uh, in, in leadership, in a leadership role. Um, by the way, you won't be able to get any jokes out of that sort of uh, line in the United States today, will you? But there we go, in 1982, Brezhnev died, and then we have this succession of elderly men 
uh, Brezhnev's um, deputy himself, uh, Kosygin, was uh, an old man. Um, that he anyway, Brezhnev was succeeded by Yuri Andropov, and he was already dying when he um, became Soviet leader. So he was Soviet leader from 1982 to 1984. It's just two years. Um, during Andropov's time, Mikhail Gorbachev was rising through the ranks. And then uh, in 1984, Andropov died and uh, Konstantin Chernyenko took over. But Konstantin, Konstantin Chernyenko was also dying. He was dying of cirrhosis of the liver, probably due to a lifetime of uh, drinking too much vodka. Um, but at that stage, Mikhail Gorbachev became um, number two. And he was in his early 50s. Uh, all the people around him in Soviet leadership were all old. Everyone else on the Politburo was old in the 60s and 70s. And here was uh, um, uh, Gorbachev. In fact, when he first became a Politburo member, he wasn't even quite 50. He was 49. Um, but here he was uh, in his prime. You know, leadership uh, leadership prime is really in the 50s. And uh, so he was in his prime and he was uh, um, ready to take over. And so uh, within a year, Chernyenko had died. Uh, during that time, before Chernyenko had died, um, Gorbachev, as uh, the Deputy General Secretary of the um, Communist Party of the Soviet Union of, um, uh, well, it, basically he was the second in command, I can't remember the full title, but uh, he um, he travelled to Britain and famously met uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who described him as a man he, she could do business with, and of course... Thatcher, as you know, was close to the American president at the time, Ronald Reagan, who uh, had been taking a very hard line against the Soviet Union. So it was interesting then in 1985, um, um, Gorbachev becomes uh, leader of the Soviet Union. And um, it was never his intention, as I said, to, to um, uh, destroy the Soviet Union or to uh, destroy communism. He did, however, um, believe in two uh, two important phrases, and those two important phrases have really gone into the English language. The two phrases that um, Gorbachev liked to use were glasnost, uh, which meant openness, and perestroika, which meant reform. And there was a greater openness about uh, the way that Gorbachev was trying to run things and uh, certainly as far as the West was concerned and um, there was an attempt to reform things, reform the Soviet Union and Soviet communism from within. Um, doesn't mean, by the way, that um, Gorbachev was in any way a Democrat, okay, and we shouldn't think that uh, he was a believer in democracy, that's not the way he was. Um, but it, it's certainly true that these two attitudes uh, struck a chord with the West and so began the idea with um, uh, his rapprochement with uh, Margaret Thatcher and with Ronald Reagan, the idea uh, of a man that you could do business with, um, led to him being a great deal more popular in the West than he was in his own country. Uh, he was aided, of course, by a couple of other people. Um, I can't remember all the names. The one that stands out to me was Eduard Shevardnadze, um, who was his foreign secretary. And, of course, um, when um, Gorbachev created the role of president of the Soviet Union, which, of course, he was going to fill, he also created the role of vice president of the Soviet Union, which was originally there meant for Shevardnadze. However, Shevardnadze resigned 
uh, before that happened because he could see other figures beginning to take over in, uh, as there was a move against Gorbachev within uh, the Politburo and elsewhere. And the uh, man who um, became the vice president, in fact, then engineered the infamous coup of 1991 when um, Gorbachev was on vacation in the Crimea and a few uh, people um, moved against um, uh, Gorbachev. He was put under house arrest and uh, the hardliners had taken over. Now a man who um, Gorbachev had in fact sacked for really taking things too far was a man called Boris Yeltsin. But Boris Yeltsin had made quite an, an extraordinary political comeback in a, in a country where um, anyone who rebelled against the regime in the past had more or less disappeared. But uh, Yeltsin had managed to come back and uh, he had been elected as president of the Russian uh, Republic, the Russian Federal Republic, obviously the largest of the states of the old Soviet Union. And uh, uh, to cut a long story short, uh, Yeltsin was uh, very much opposing the coup that had happened. There's famous pictures of him standing in front of the uh, the tanks, standing on the tanks uh, outside um, uh, the Kremlin, and uh, arguing that the uh, army should not fire on the uh, on the people. And the army actually took notice of him. They did not do so. It ended up with uh, Gorbachev being freed, coming back to Moscow and uh, having a, a warm, though not hero's welcome. Yeltsin was the hero of the hour. And within just a few months, that uh, coup had happened in August of 1991. By December 1991, um, Gorbachev had resigned and the Soviet Union had dissolved into separate republics. So you had the Russian Republic and uh, Ukraine and uh, all the various other um, republics had all gained independence. And uh, this was a major deal. It's probably one of the most significant events of the 20th century. And I just remember this uh, very, very well indeed. Uh, an extraordinary event to happen. Um, and an extraordinary event for the world. And it's now symbolised, uh, brought back by the fact that Gorbachev has just died. And you think about that succession of Soviet leaders. Brezhnev dying in uh, 82. Um, Andropov dying 84, Chernyenko dying 85, Gorbachev then dies much, much later, lives to be an old man of 91. A bitter old man, uh, he certainly um, did not seem to have any sort of relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin, and in fact, uh, apparently, uh, you know, um, there has already been a funeral for uh, Gorbachev, uh, at which Putin was too busy to attend, which is, you know, rather extraordinary, isn't it? Um, you know, when Margaret Thatcher died, political opponents of Thatcher from the Labour Party attended the uh, the funeral. Um, and so it seems a bit odd that, um, that that would happen. But there we go. That's the way that the Russian Republic uh, works today. Um, another piece of news, um, again, very much related to August, is that on August 31st, 1997, 25 years ago, uh, there was the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. And that death was an extraordinary moment in Britain. Uh, I have never seen anything like it before or since in my lifetime. 
There was an extraordinary outpouring of emotion. The media tried to make out later when the Queen Mother died that you had the same outpouring of emotion. No, you did not. There was nothing compared to the outpouring of emotion that happened when um, Diana died. Now, Diana was uh, actually pretty much my age. She was a couple of months older than me. If by some remote chance we'd been in the same school, we'd have been in the same academic year group. That's what we're saying there. And uh, But, of course, she married an, uh, an older man, Prince Charles. Uh, to the throne and it was really you know of course prince charles had already was already in love with um, his current wife camilla parker bowles uh, but she was already married to somebody else and um, all the, the problems associated with that really diana was chosen i think many people would argue as a breeding stock they needed to have legitimate um, unblemished undiluted heirs to the throne um, the argument would be that you need one heir and you need one spare. And that is precisely what they got in the form of William and Harry. And um, so, you know, this this was a tragedy waiting to happen. The marriage was clearly not a happy marriage. You could see that really even from the start. There were always rumours, even from the start, that this was not a happy marriage. But eventually the marriage did uh, fall apart and, and um, so they became, uh, eventually they, uh, uh, the Princess of Wales uh, uh, had a famous television interview with Martin Bashir um, on the BBC. There's been controversy over that of recent years. I'm not going to comment on that, but certainly that uh, interview where she described herself as being, uh, would des describe things as being there were three in the marriage. Uh, really led to things being completely untenable. So the Queen instructed them to get divorced, which they did. But uh, Diana was still remarkably um, popular. So, of course, you eventually then get to this fateful day where she's supposedly dating Dodi al-Fayed, the son of Mohammed al-Fayed. And again, I don't really know what the relationship was. It's not up to me to say. But there are many mysteries surrounding that death uh, in, uh, as that car drove under a, a tunnel uh, under the River Seine in Paris and uh, somehow crashed and uh, Diana died as a result. Now, there's all sorts of rumours about that. It's worth looking up those rumours because... With recent events, the things that have happened in the last two years, I am no longer um, apt to believe any of the establishment stories. So maybe for years I've accepted the establishment stories, although I've always had the suspicion that intelligence forces were behind Diana's uh, death. The reasons for that we don't know, but she was certainly a loose cannon. Uh, we don't know quite why uh, that happened, but there is very much this uh, rumour that um, maybe she was deliberately killed rather than um, dying as, as a result of an accident. The same sort of rumours really that you get about whether um, Kennedy was uh, actually assassinated by the man who that he's said to have been assassinated by or whether he was taken out by other gunmen who, uh, uh, attached to secret service people. 
um, it's not my job really to go into that now it's not my job to go into the stuff to do with Diana but it's it's interesting and it's worth researching into because I don't really hold a great deal of um, value in any establishment narrative anymore um, so quite what the what actually happened under that tunnel in that tunnel under the Seine in in Paris I don't know what I do know is that when that happened, there was such an outpouring of grief. As I remember it, and someone may correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, I am an old man and my memory is going rusty. But as I remember it, um, August 31st, I think, was a Sunday. Um, uh, the church I was part of at the time in South Wales was due to have a big Sunday school meeting that afternoon. But Diana had died... Very few people really knew what to do. Um, there was such an outpouring of emotion everywhere. And I did say, and I, I think I was right. I don't know whether in retrospect I would make the same decision now. I don't know. But I um, I thought we should um, uh, cancel that Sunday school meeting. I know that one of the um, pastors who was from the United States argued, no, you know, we shouldn't be bothering about an, an adulterous young woman who's uh, been uh, killed in, in such a way and again I don't know whether I would take the same view now because there's no doubt that he was right about her character but again it was clearly a national thing that happened and probably we couldn't really have gone ahead with uh, the meeting um, the, the next week was surreal because she was, uh, the funeral was going to be the following Saturday, and it was such a surreal week. Um, flowers being laid outside Buckingham Palace in London, um, blocking that whole uh, area around Nelson's Column. Uh, the Queen, still on vacation in Scotland, it took her time to get back to uh, London. Um, a lot of people argued uh, that uh, she was more or less told she had to come back by the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair. It's really diminished the power of the Queen during that time. Um, the funeral went ahead, uh, and which again was an extraordinary event with um, Diana's brother, uh, the Earl, uh, Earl Spencer, uh, making an extraordinary speech as his valedictory address for his sister, um, which was almost like uh, the first major act of rebellion um, against a, a, a British monarch since 1745. Um, so it was, it was an unusual week. It's a week that I will never forget. And it's a week that, you know, I can still reflect on now. And I still don't know what to make of it I really don't know what to make of it from August 31st to the funeral on uh, September the 6th I don't know what to make of it I don't know how to analyze it uh, many other people have tried but we can't help but say that it was one of the most extraordinary events in British history I know from conversations I've had it touched people here in the United States um, where I now live and uh, I don't know how uh, many people's lives were changed by those particular events. Well, those are my historical reflections there. And um, maybe now it's time to get into um, some Bible exposition. Um, 
we're going to have um, uh, two Bible expositions, uh, but I also want to read something from um, a, a book. And uh, let's get hold of that book right now. And the book that I'm particularly interested in reading to you right at this moment is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. And I've noticed a couple of different people who I have links with on Facebook quite independently talking about this book recently. And I thought that I could make some minor comments, not as major as those other guys are doing, but I thought it might be of interest to actually read um, parts of that book um, and just comment a little bit as we go along so that's what I did um, a couple of nights ago uh, sitting by the banks of the river and uh, so let's um, let's listen to my thoughts on that right now immediately after that by the way I will go into a Bible exposition and that Bible exposition will be on uh, um, Mark's Gospel uh, chapter 10 as we look at the uh, account of the rich young ruler First of all, here's my thoughts on the first section of Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Tom, the Puritan writer Thomas Brooks. Well, it's an interesting thing, but recently two people who I have contact with on uh, Facebook have independently talked about reading an old Puritan book um, called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. And um, I felt challenged to read it myself, but I wondered whether it might be of interest if I just read this actually out loud. Okay, it's well out of copyright, so I'm going to read it out loud onto the podcast, and I'll stop and I'll comment. I have no idea, therefore, how much I'm going to read in each episode, but I thought I'll, I'll start and uh, see where we go. I know that in this first section there's quite a few Bible verses and I know that I'm going to have to stop and uh, concentrate on those Bible verses. So I'm just getting my um, Bible up. So it seems like a good place to read this. Sat here by the uh, Pondere River behind me. And uh, well, let's have a look then. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Brooks starts with this quotation from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay, so I'm now good, just going to read his words. In this fifth verse, the apostle shows that the incestuous person had by his incest saddened those precious souls that God would not have saddened. Souls that walk sinful, sinfully are hazeals to the godly. 2 Kings chapter 8 verses 12 etc and draw many sighs and tears from them. Jeremiah weeps in secret for Judah's sins Jeremiah 9 verse 1 and Paul cannot speak of the belly gods with dry uh, with dry eyes Philip and Paul cannot speak of the belly gods with dry eyes uh, Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19. Sorry, it just was the end of the line there. I thought just thought it said Philip. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19. Lot's righteous soul was burdened, vexed, and racked by the filthy Sodomites. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 7 and 8. Every sinful Sodomite was a hazel to his eyes. 
a, had, had a dream unto his heart, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11, gracious souls used to mourn for other men's sins as well as their own, and for their souls and sins who make a mock of sin, and a jest of damning their own souls. Guilt or grief is all that gracious souls get by communion with vain souls. Psalm 119, verses 136 to 158. Well, we're going to have to have a look at those. Uh, I'm clearly going to have to have a look at those particular uh, verses um, before I carry on reading what Brooks has to say. He has been. He started with Second Corinthians chapter two. Um, we better find out who these Hazels are if I've pronounced that right. So that is. Uh, let me just see if I can split the screen on this and try and get the. Um, I'd like to get my Bible up on here as well if I can. It doesn't seem to want to do this. Okay. Oh, there we go. I've got it. According to Plants of the Bible, okay. ODU plant site, Old Dominion University, almonds are mentioned six times in the scriptures and only in the Old Testament. Okay. The first reference is in Genesis chapter 43, verse 11, <laughs> where Jacob, in an apparent attempt to curry favor with the ruler of Egypt, orders his sons to take some of the best products. Okay, I'm just going to have to pause. So in 2 Kings 8 verse 12, um, we've got some, uh, what we've got here is, um, better go back to verse 7. Elisha came to Damascus, uh, Ben-Hadad the king of Syria was sick, when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go and meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? Uh, Hezael, therefore, is a, a servant of uh, Ben-Hadad. So Hezael went to meet him, took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. He came and stood before him. He said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hezael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do these things? Okay. But in fact, um, what happens is that Hazael ends up killing the king because of Elijah, Elisha's words and he becomes the king in his place and does indeed do the evil things that um, Elisha has prophesied. So, uh, you know, Hazael seems to be a godly man coming for aid, but in fact is not. The, uh, what we then have is um, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. And by the way, we should say that, that um, Elisha, it says that Elisha wept, and that's uh, an interesting point. He weeps for those particular sins. Let's go on then to Jeremiah uh, chapter 9. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. And I don't tend to use my tablet with a split screen, okay? I'm, I've got the Bible down at the bottom and I've got the book that I'm reading at the top. So um, it may well be, it may well limit how I, how I deal with this uh, book, but we'll carry on, okay? Chapter 9, verse 1. 
This is what Jeremiah says. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. See, a lot of people seem to think in Jeremiah's time that uh, he was glad to be preaching destruction. He was just a miserable man who liked uh, preaching destruction. Far from it. Jeremiah would have loved to preach good things. He would have loved to have prophesied blessing to the nation of Israel. He was therefore a weeping prophet because uh, the fact that he had to address the sins of the people caused him to weep. Uh, and that's um, very important understanding of Jeremiah. So we've got two prophets there weeping. We've got Elisha weeping for the sins of um, uh, this man who comes to see him, the servant of the king of Syria. And then you've got uh, Jeremiah weeping for the people of um, uh, the Jeremiah weeping for the uh, the children of Israel. Uh, let's move on again. When I made the mistake, look, thinking that uh, Paul was talking about Philip, and I was wondering where on earth that was. This is, in fact, in Philippians, and we need to look at chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And by the way, Paul has just said that he is talking to the Philippians, asking them to imitate him. So in verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. So there we've got the Apostle Paul, and he weeps, he, he, he's criticizing people who um, are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, people who presumably have been in the, the church, but they're now walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. But he doesn't glory in that, he doesn't hammer it home, instead he weeps. And we should weep for the sins of those whom we love and those whom we care about if we're praying for them. We weep. We want to share the gospel with them. We want to bring them to the Lord. Um, and we're weeping for those things. And it's important that we weep because, of course, we are sinners too. You know, and I look at these things and I've got to look at my own heart and say, well, you know, particularly with all the things that I've been through, I don't have any right to gloat over anyone. I look at someone who's sinning, and I think, well, I've done a lot worse than that. But God has saved me. I know that he, God loves me. I know he loves me. And when I see, therefore, those who I love in, in a place that is not good for them, uh, straying a long way from God... It makes me weep. And I can think of such people who I want to weep over, people who I love and I love dearly, but I want to weep over them. Um, and by the way, that does not mean that I'm trying to put myself on the level of Elisha or Jeremiah or Paul. Quite the opposite. They were bringing themselves down to a human level. They were showing how important it is to be to weep for those who sin rather than to, rather than to gloat. That's our attitude when we see sin. Uh, not to excuse the sin, of course, and not to wink at the sin. But not to gloat over it either. Not to hammer people because of it either. Um, this is really what Jesus was saying when he said, Judge not, that you be not judged. A lot of people quote that out of context. They think it means, well, don't say anything judgmental about people. You know, someone's a sinner. Well, who are we? Who am I to say that? That's not what it means at all. That's not what Jesus was saying. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. 
He was saying we have to look at ourselves. We've got to get this plank out of our eyes. And we do that with weeping. That plank should make us weep and we take it out of our eyes. And Jesus didn't say, take the plank out of your eyes and then say nothing. He actually said, take the plank out of your eyes, then you can see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see that it isn't wrong to take the speck out of your brother's eye? It isn't wrong to point out the sin. But we do it in humility, knowing that we've got that enormous plank that we've got to get out of our eye. And that's why we do it with weeping, not with gloating, not with pride. Because I am no better than those sinners. I am no better. I am a terrible sinner. Uh, my greater namesake said he was the chief of all sinners. I used to think that was false modesty, but you know, think of the things that I've been through. It's not false modesty. I am the chief of all sinners. I have no right in myself. But of course, I'm not talking about my right in myself. I'm talking about what God wants. And the fact that God speaks through sinful, weak human beings like me. I've been thinking a lot about weakness and strength. And it's through our weakness that we become strong. Because it's only as we realize how weak we are that we allow God in. In fact, if we try and stand strong in our own lives, we fall. And I've been doing that a lot. And it's only when we come to God in weakness that we can, uh, um, that, that, that we can manage. Uh, Zechariah 12 verse 11 um, it's not that I don't want to concentrate on Lot's righteous soul being burdened but there's a huge amount and that would take me off on a bunny trail and I've written an entire chapter uh, about that in um, um, the second volume of my Genesis commentary about Genesis so let me just pass over that verse that was mentioned let's get on to Zechariah chapter 12 verse 11 Zechariah <laughs> difficult one to find is Zechariah where is he? <laughs> I've lost him. There he is. Zechariah, chapter 12, and uh, we're going to look at verse 11. This is what's said here. On that day, and this is the day when uh, God will pour out uh, uh, on the house of David and the, and the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Okay, That's the day when all the Jewish people will look on me, it says, this is Jesus speaking, in fact. Uh, this is uh, prophetic of Jesus. They'll look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadadrimen in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. So again, we've got weeping for sin at that point as well. And uh, the final verse that, um, uh, in that first paragraph that's uh, quoted is um, Psalm 119. Uh, the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest of the Psalms, Psalm 119. And we're looking at two verses. First of all, we'll look at verse 136, then at 158. So, 136 first. Psalm 119, verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. When people don't keep God's law... It doesn't lead us to hammer them. It should lead us to weep 
is weeping here again. And I, I don't know what Brooks has gone to say. I've not read this book by Brooks before, but I, I, since it's talking, since the title is "Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices," I'm going to assume that one of his remedies is weeping for sin, because it's Satan who causes that sin. Um, we should weep for that sin. Weep for the sin in our lives. I've done a lot of weeping for the sins in my life. Weeping for the sins in others. Think of dear friends I have who are not following the Lord, and I've got to weep for them. Um, 158, verse 158. Let's just move on there. This It actually says here, this is interesting, it says, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. That's a bit of an odd verse, because it's not talking about weeping, but it is at least talking about an emotional response. Um, it's a disgust at the sin, but we've got a, a love for those people and a weeping for the sin that they have. Let's, um, I've done 14 minutes on this. I'll just do a little bit more. Okay, um... Brooks is talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, he quoted verse 2 of that, but let's, let's go in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Actually, I better just check which verse. No, I actually quoted verse 11 at the beginning. But he um, maybe it would be quite useful to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's read that in full because I think that will be a good background for what Brooks is saying. Um, Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who have made me who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. Okay, many tears. We've got that word again there. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. These tears because of sins are to do with love, the Apostle Paul is saying. It's because of love uh, that I have for you. And by the way, we do know that there's two words for love in uh, the Bible. This is verse 4. There's two words for love in the New Testament, rather, in the Greek. Um... I think I just ought to look that up, if I may, in verse 4, which is the word. It could either be philos or it could be agape, and I actually don't know which one it is, but it is actually agape, and I thought it would be agape. Um, very briefly, the difference is philos is the affection that we have for someone. It is a feeling, a feeling of love. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. A feeling of affection that we have for someone is a good and honourable thing. Um, but, you know, that that feeling just changes. You know, there are times when we feel close to someone, there are times when we feel far away from someone. That's feelings. Agape isn't to do with feelings. Agape is to do with our determination. I am determined to love. I am determined to love. And it's that determination to love someone who is not yet with the Lord um, that brings tears. It brings tears um, because they're not yet um, belonging to the Lord. And, you know, to have those tears does not imply that I'm better than them. I'm not, it's not better than the person that I love. It's simply that I know that I'm loved and forgiven by God himself with that agape love. I am loved and forgiven by God himself, not because of anything I've done. I don't deserve it. You know, I stand in awe and think, uh, 
what God has done because I don't deserve a thing of it. I absolutely don't. Oh, I know that full well. I know that completely. Um, but it's true. And, you know, I can think of somebody else. And in many ways, they seem much better than I am. But don't know the Lord. Not, uh, so do they have that forgiveness? And, you know, I should weep for that. I should weep for that. Um, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive joy. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. It was a very bad situation in Corinth, and, you know, I could go off on a bunny trail on this, and many preachers have talked about this particular thing, where you've got one person condemned by Paul in 1 Corinthians because he's living an incestuous lifestyle, but he's repented by the time uh, the, uh, the 2 Corinthians is, right, is being written, and Paul, who told them in the first letter that they should uh, throw him out of the church because they hadn't done so, uh, the Corinthians were sort of seeming as if they were loving by keeping him in the church. No, they should throw him out, which they did. But now he has repented, and so Paul is now saying, bring him back in, show him love. And just to finish with what Brooks says here, it says in the sixth verse, he shows that the punishment that was inflicted upon the incestuous person was sufficient, and therefore they should not refuse to receive him who had repented and sorrowed for his former faults and follies. It's not for the honor of Christ, the credit of the gospel, nor the good of souls for professors. And by the way, that doesn't mean teachers here. It means someone who professes God. Professors to be like these bloody wretches that burnt some that recanted at the stake, saying that they would send them into another world whilst they're in a good mind. In the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th verses, the Apostle stirs up the church to forgive him, to comfort him, and to confirm their love towards him, lest he be swallowed up over much sorrow. Satan going about to mix the detestable Darnell of desperation with the godly sorrow of the pure, penitent heart. It was a sweet saying of one, let a man grieve for his sin, and then joy for his grief. Isn't that wonderful? That's, um, that's a really great saying that, uh, that uh, Brooks quotes here. Let a man grieve for his sin and then joy for his grief. You know, I've thought about that many times. I grieve for my sin. It can bring me to tears. But then I'm forgiven. So I should be rejoice for my grief because it's uh, restored that fellowship with God just as it had for that man. That sorrow for sin, says Brooks, that keeps the soul from looking towards the mercy seat and that keeps Christ and the soul asunder, or that shall render the soul unfit for the communion of saints as a sinful sorrow. In the 11th verse, he lays down another reason to work them to show pity and mercy to the penitent sinner that was moaning and groaning under his sin and misery, i.e. lest Satan should get an advantage of us. We are not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of his devices. And so really at that point, Brooks is clearly, um, uh, he's really 
given a, a good opening to why he's going to be talking about the devices of uh, Satan, precious remedies against Satan's devices. We're not ignorant of those devices, and uh, he's giving remedies. So I think that might be a good point to pause there, and I'm just going to highlight that in here, because I've got to make sure... Uh, let me just make sure I just highlight... Oh dear going to make sure I highlight it. Ah, it's very difficult to highlight. It doesn't highlight in the same way as my Bible does. Okay. I I better put a bookmark in than if I can't highlight things. Put a bookmark in at that point. And I've added that. There we go. So we should be able to pick it up at that point. Okay, I hope that's been useful to you. I'm going to enjoy reading through this. I don't know how long it'll take me. I don't know whether I'll be able to do one in each podcast, but I've been going through this for over 20 minutes now, and there's other things to put in this podcast. So let's leave that at that point. And as uh, the Mon- Monty Python used to say, uh, now for something, well, perhaps not completely different, but certainly different. Well, last night I was down here, and I was uh, filming some... I was reading from a book by Thomas Brooks. Uh, from his book, Precious Remedies Against uh, Satan. Um, I've forgotten the full title now and I haven't got it here in front of me. I could look it up, but um, if you don't mind, I'm not going to do this at the moment because I want to talk about what I was going to talk about. I took a photograph uh, after the sun had gone down of the moon. And the moon looked particularly beautiful and the moon was about to disappear itself uh, because the moon had only just um, emerged from new moon. New moon is when you can't see the moon. It's, uh, it's at that phase, the moon's there in the sky, but difficult to see because it's dark. Uh, it's the dark side we're seeing. The sun is shining on the side of the moon that we don't see. And um, that's new moon. And it's as if the moon disappears. And new moon isn't just one day. There are three days, really, when you can't see the moon in its phases. Well, it always reminds me that since the moon had appeared, uh, uh, you had this tiny, thin crescent. And uh, it looked so beautiful, a tiny, thin crescent. And it was over the hills, which are over the other side of the river over here. Um, and I took a photograph. You won't be able to see much of the moon there, but you get the idea. So, um, you know, the date I am recording this is August the 31st. Uh, new moon was the 27th, that's the actual day. So from the 26th through the 28th, you could not see the moon. So yesterday was uh, the 30th. It was the second day that the moon had reappeared. This happens, you know, the phases of the moon run approximately over 28 or 29 days. And um, the Bible has something to say about that. The ancient people knew there was something special about the moon appearing, disappearing, dying, and disappearing for three days, and then rising again after three days. You must know where I'm going with this. Now that's just pagan superstition. Well, no, um, it's mentioned in the Psalms. Psalm 89 is one of the Messianic Psalms, and it's clearly talking about Jesus. Clearly talking about Jesus. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. That's clearly King David. So what has he said to David? He says, 
I will establish your offspring forever, or your seed, as this translated Who is the seed or offspring of David? And the answer is clearly Jesus. And God is saying, I will establish your seed forever. Jesus will be established forever. Build your throne for all generations. think it's only going to be a thousand years, only a thousand years, but of course after that he's king forever once the new heavens and the new earth come into place. So there's a lot in Psalm 89 uh, speaking prophetically about Jesus and the psalmist then returns to the same theme about David and his seed. Verse 34, God says, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. The prophecies that God's given in the Old Testament, God is not going to change. He's not going to change his covenant. And of course, he made a covenant with David. It's the Davidic covenant. It's the kingly covenant, uh, showing that the Messiah will be the king, and therefore descendants of David. Let's go on then. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring, or his seed, shall endure forever. It's the same thing again. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it will be established forever. Like the moon. It's bringing up the moon. And of course, uh, if you're talking about the sun and the moon together, you're implying you're talking about phases of the moon. But I've missed out a phrase. Let's read it all again, and I'll, I'll add the uh, final phrase so you'll know exactly what I'm saying. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Faithful witness in the skies. The moon that was over there, just having arisen, was a faithful witness in the skies. Now what on earth does that mean? It means that it's a prophecy of someone who dies and then rises again three days later just as the moon dies and then rises again three days later and that prophecy is concerning the seed of David the descendants of David who is clearly Jesus it's a prophecy that Jesus like the moon will die and will rise again three days later and that is just absolutely wonderful absolutely beautiful it fits it makes sense and it's exactly what happened. Well, let me move on from that point, if I may. I must just pause the video a moment. What I really wanted to talk about was Jesus' witness himself on earth and how he applies this. And there's a very interesting way that he applies this, which at first sight seems unusual, as if it's something unique. But it isn't unique. And uh, the particular passage I'm referring to, there's a particular encounter that Jesus has. It's mentioned in a couple of the Gospels. I'm going to read from Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 17. And this may be a very familiar account to you. Um, let me read it. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. 
do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I could go on, but uh, I want to concentrate on this uh, rich young man. And he's likely to be a ruler. He's probably a rabbi himself. In fact, I'll mention in a bit that he may be somebody who is named later in the Gospels. But for now, let's just leave that aside. Uh, let's keep him anonymous for now. So he comes up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's have a look at that particular verse and see what it is that uh, Jesus is saying. In the Greek, let me find the right place here. Got to find the absolute uh, right place. Um, oh, I've got to find this. What must I do to inter inherit eternal life? Um, did ask if they agathe, agathe. Um, good teacher. Did ask did ask teacher. Uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? I guess, I guess, I guess it's right, agathos. What must I do to in, uh, inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? Um, now, of course, Jesus was and is good. Jesus is not denying he's good, but he wants to point this person to him. What we've seen in Psalm 89 is that Jesus is the seed of David. Uh, he's, he's come uh, by prophecy, and he's the one who will die and will be raised to life three days later. In other words, he is himself God. He's the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. This young man recognizes there's something special about Jesus, and he calls him good teacher. He's recognized that Jesus is good, but Jesus won't let him get away with just calling him a good man. C.S. Lewis said that, you know, you can't say that Jesus was a good man. That's not open to you, because Jesus claimed to be God. So if Jesus claimed to be God, you've got three possibilities. Either he's a liar, he could be a liar from the pit of hell, because he's trying to get people to follow him, a mere man. Or he could be self-deluded that he does actually think that he's uh, God, so he's a madman. He's a bad man, or he's a madman, or he's a good man. And if he's a good man, that means he's telling the truth, and he is in fact God. 
And of course, that last one is the one I believe. But if you're not going to believe that, you cannot say that Jesus was a good man. Your only other two options are that he was a bad man or a madman. You can't say he's just a good man. And this is what this young man says. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus uh, want, uh, doesn't want to uh, hedge the question. He's actually challenging him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is pointing out to him that he must be God because clearly he's, he's saying that the young man is right to call him a good teacher, but he's saying, why are you calling me a good teacher? It's because I am God. Then he goes on to say, you know the commandments. Now this is very interesting because you might have to turn back to the Ten Commandments to see where these commandments come from. Jesus says six things. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Six commands. There are ten commandments. Ten commandments. What's, this, what's Jesus missed out? He's clearly missed out all the ones to do with God, but there's a bit more to it than that. There are four commandments to do with God. So you might think, well, that, this is the other six. No, it isn't. Because Jesus has also missed out the tenth commandment, which is about not coveting. You're not to desire wrongly something that doesn't belong to you. In other words, Jesus has added something here. He says, don't bear false witness. And he says, do not defraud. In the Ten Commandments, it doesn't say do not defraud, but it doesn't need to say do not defraud because defrauding is a form of lying. It's lying with money. So if you're not allowed to lie, Commandment 9, you're not allowed to defraud. Why does Jesus add about defrauding and why does he miss out about coveting? The answer is because the young man is already, by his own admission, and as we'll see in a moment, breaking the Tenth Commandment because he is coveting, and it could be, therefore, that Jesus is saying, you are someone who defrauds people. This is your sin, because Jesus, unlike us, when we witness, when we witness to people, we can make some guesses about people's hearts from what we know, but we don't know into their soul. But Jesus did. He knew, he knew exactly into this man's soul. He's saying, don't defraud. Why? Because that's what the young man is doing. He is defrauding people. He is lying with money. Now, we know Jesus would obviously know that the man was lying because I can point to any one of you out there and tell you you're lying, and me, because it stands to reason we all lie. We have all broken that commandment. I haven't personally murdered anyone. Actually, I have because Jesus said that when I'm angry with someone wrongly, that's murdering them in my heart. Murdering in my heart. Just like I might not be going out committing adultery, but I'm committing adultery in my heart every time I lust after uh, a, a pretty figure. But I think Jesus is pointing to what this man is actually doing. Do not defraud, you're lying with money. Now just keep that in mind, because then the young man's trying to justify himself. He says, teacher, he doesn't want to be caught about by saying good teacher again. So he just says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All these I have kept from my youth. He's trying to justify himself. Of course, he's not keen on being told that he defrauds people. But he says, all these things I've kept from my youth. He's tried his best, as far as it depends on him, to be a good man. Jesus recognizes that to some extent, because Jesus looked at him, 
And what's it say next? He says, he loved him. Jesus loved him. There are two words for love in the New Testament. It's worth studying this. I don't go off on a bunny trail. It would take too long. But the two words in brief are philos and agape. Philos is the affection we have. We like someone. We love someone because we're attracted to them. We like their personality. There's nothing wrong with this, okay? It's just that in the New Testament, it's not the strongest form of love because, in a sense, feelings are not really what we have any control over. We have feelings. There are people that we like. There are people that we naturally are drawn to. Philos. How do I love someone who is unlikable, unphilosophable, if you like? How do we like someone? How do we love someone in that way? By an act of will. And that act of will is not philos love, it's agape love. Agape love. It's worth studying that again. I think I should come back to this another time and expound that uh, from various places in, uh, in the Bible, that difference between agape and philos. But please just take it that there is that difference. Jesus loves this man with agape love. Why? How can God love someone who's a sinner? Well, because God always loves people who are sinners. In fact, if God didn't love sinners, there would be no human beings we love because we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus loves this man. Now, let's come back to that point again because agape is an act of Jesus. It's not to do with this young man being likeable. I don't know whether he's likeable or not. I suspect he probably was. I mean, there's something humble about him for a ruler to come and kneel before Jesus, this itinerant scumbag preacher who all the other rabbis have been warned about. You know, you don't talk to this man. And yet this man is so interested. He knows that Jesus has the words of eternal life and he comes to him. He says, good teacher. Well, he says he's kept all these commandments. And Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. I've heard sermons on this so many times and the sermons almost always miss the mark. They concentrate on Jesus' words later. Oh, it's harder for a rich, uh, to, for, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Let's not have riches. Let's go and live, live in a socialist paradise. Take all the money away from the rich people and give it to the poor, and then we'll be able to have some form of salvation. That's what this is saying, isn't it? No, it is not. There are plenty of rich people in the Bible who follow Jesus because their riches do not take them away from Jesus. Abraham was given great wealth. He was blessed, and he worshipped God on the end of his staff. Solomon was given riches. You might say, well, Solomon fell away. Yeah, but he was given his riches as a point when he hadn't fallen away. When he says to God, uh, give me wisdom. And God says, you didn't ask for riches and blessings as many people would have in your position. So I'm going to give you wisdom, but I'm also going to give you the uh, riches and the, uh, as well. Solomon was a rich man and he was blessed at that point because of his faithfulness. Yes, we can talk about what happened to him later on another occasion, but he was given his riches as a blessing from God because his mind wasn't focused on riches his mind was focused on wisdom doing what God wanted him to do wisdom so to be able to obey God so you see you can be rich and follow God your mind isn't to be focused on the riches that's not what your heart desires and God may give riches um, this I don't have from personal experience I've never been a rich man 
There was a time when I had more money than I have now. I've got very little money now, so it's really quite a struggle. But I know when I look around, there are people who are wealthy, who are serving God, who love God, and they're serving God. And they use their wealth, not for selfish reasons, but to do wonderful, good things for God. Because their focus isn't on their wealth. Their wealth is a tool that they use and put into the hands of God. They're following God and obeying Him. So you see, giving away all you have to the poor is not for salvation. It's not to make you good. So what can make you good? And the answer is, Jesus has only given five of the Ten Commandments. He has deliberately given this extra one saying, don't defraud, don't lie with money, because clearly that's what this young man is doing. And then we look at the other five commandments to do with God, four commands to do with God, and one in the second table to do with not coveting. It's clear that this man, young man covets money, and money is his God. He is not loving the Lord his God with all his heart. He does have a God other than God himself, and that God is his money. He is an idol worshipper, and his idol is his money. That's the key. Jesus is not saying to this young man that you've got to be poor to get to heaven. You've got, I can't have any possessions to get to heaven. You must live in a socialist paradise to get to heaven. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying specifically to this young man, your money is your God, and you've got to get rid of your God, and then follow me. That's when you have treasure in heaven. Jesus says you'll have treasure in heaven by giving away what, is, uh, what you have, are worshipping, then come follow me. The salvation is only found by following Jesus. If you look at those Ten Commandments, you can't follow them. We've already said that you are liars, so you've broken at least one of the commandments. I've already admitted that I have committed murder in my heart and I've committed adultery in my heart. I have stolen things, by the way. And I have lied and lied and lied and I have coveted. And so there are plenty of things that I've had as gods in place of God. So you see, we cannot actually keep those Ten Commandments, and that's what they're there for. They're not there for us to follow and obey. Well, they are in a sense, but only after salvation, because we can never fully follow them. We can never get salvation by following those Ten Commandments. We follow those Ten Commandments as best we can out of love for God after He saved us. But the commandments themselves can't save us. Following Jesus is what saves us, and that's why Jesus says that. We need treasure in heaven, and treasure in heaven is gained by following Jesus. Get rid of the idol in your life. Now, for this rich young man, his idol was his money. It's not for me, because I don't have money. There's plenty of other things in my idols, people who I've put before God, people who have inhabited my brain more than God where my every waking thought has been about certain people I make them my God my circumstances my God lots of other things are made as my God I've got to give them up for some people it might be their music to give up I know that that's not sinful for me I don't worship my music I use my music to praise God with if I start to worship my music, 
God will want me to get rid of it. At the moment I'm not doing so, I have the freedom to use that and to use it for his glory. But I have got to put behind me the waking thoughts of the people who take the place of God, how I look to them for their for solutions rather than looking to God. There may be other things. For you, it might be something completely different. What's your God? You've got to get rid of that. The point is, God needs to be first. And that's the key to all of us. Jesus is simply applying that to this one young man. And when he speaks to other people, he wants them to get rid of their gods too. And worship only him. But their gods might be something different. They might have a different false god from the false god that this young man has, which is his money. You see, when Jesus is talking with his um, disciples... He doesn't say it's impossible for someone to get into the kingdom of heaven who has money. He says it's difficult. The disciples say, well, who can be saved? And of course, Jesus says, well, with man, it's impossible because we can't follow the Ten Commandments. It's impossible to follow the Ten Commandments. But with God, it becomes possible because Jesus Christ has taken the penalty for our breaking of those laws. The breaking of those laws is sin. We are sinned by breaking those laws, by lying, by murdering, by committing adultery, by coveting, by stealing, by having idols, by taking the Lord's name in vain, by not loving God as we should, by not putting God first in everything. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did you know that the English word sin is an interesting one? It's not the biblical word, I mean it is a biblical word because it's in our English Bibles, but it's taken from an archery term of firing an arrow at the target, but it falls short of the target. I find that beautiful. That doesn't mean that sin is exactly falling short, sin is deliberately going against God and breaking the commandments. But it's interesting that, um, you know, the, uh, our English versions translate um, that verse in Romans 3.23, uh, uh, sorry, 6.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short at the arrow that falls before the target. It looks as if it was going to hit the target. It was going straight for the bullseye, but gravity brings it down. And it falls short of the target. And that is what sin is. We fall short of the target. But the reason why we fall short of the target is because we deliberately disobey God. So we don't push that analogy too far. It's not that we need that we need to try harder to hit the target. No, we cannot hit the target. It's not possible. And therefore, we need to become followers of Jesus because with God, it is possible. And that's why so many evangelists these days are telling us the really good, godly, biblical evangelists like my friend Ray Comfort, are telling us what we need to do is point people to the bad news first, show them in the Ten Commandments that they have fallen short of the target, that they have sinned. And because of sin, they cannot get to God. You cannot get to God by yourself. This rich young man couldn't get to God by himself. We cannot get to God by ourselves. We need God to come to us. We need to follow him. And we need to repent and we need to put our trust in him. And that's what this young man needed to do. Verse 22, the young man was disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. There are some people, and I don't think we can prove this, this is 
a conjecture. And I will not build a theology on a conjecture, but I think it's an interesting conjecture. Some people think that this man was Nicodemus, the man who Jesus had said to, you must be born again. The man who was secretly a follower of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, friend of Joseph of Arimathea, a man who was secretly worshiping Jesus. Why? Because maybe he did reflect on these words. Maybe he did repent and become a follower, disciple of Jesus. Now, I don't know that. I don't know what happened to this rich young ruler. I don't know whether this rich young ruler is Nicodemus. That is conjecture. It would be nice to think it was. But certainly Nicodemus was a man who had to be born again and who had to come to know Jesus since the Bible says he was secretly a disciple. Maybe he became more publicly a disciple after Jesus' death. The point is this is the only way of salvation. The only way of salvation is to become a follower of Jesus by repenting of the sins that we have, the sins that we know that we've committed, and trusting completely in Jesus, just like someone jumping from a plane has to trust in a parachute and put it on. We have to put on Jesus and trust completely in him, and then we will be saved. We've covered a lot of ground there, starting with, by talking about the moon, the faithful witness, and ending up talking about Jesus himself sharing the gospel of his own life because he is God and was and is God and the moon gave faithful witness to that by dying and rising on the third day Jesus died for our sins for the fact that we broke these commandments he rose on the third day to prove that we can be born from the dead risen with him to live with him dwell with him for all eternity not because we deserve it I don't deserve it. I'm one of the worst of sinners. So I don't deserve it. Jesus deserves it. And for reasons that I don't understand, but for which I praise him, he's chosen to give me eternal life and save my sins. And I trust that you will put your trust in him too. Be saved and come to know him. Well, if you were watching the, um, the previous uh, episode of um, the Proverbs 1810 podcast, you will know that um, I have been playing a couple of tunes uh, from um, on the melodica. And by the way, uh, a lot of the music that I'm uh, trying to record at the moment uh, on melodica and on piano uh, with vocals and so on, I am getting onto a website. So please watch out for that website. There's going to be links to it from the Proverbs 1810 uh, website so uh, you should be able to find it um, I, uh, uh, anyway do do watch out for that music the website you need to look for is called uh, Paul Taylor music uh, no I beg your pardon Paul Taylor piano music dot com look for out for that Paul Taylor piano music dot com and gradually my music will appear there and you'll be able to purchase some of it or um, or, or support me and subscribe to me in different ways and uh, as certain music events start to happen in uh, um, around the place I hope that you will uh, want to support those too meanwhile here's a little bit of melodic music played down by the river
Well, I hope you're enjoying the musical interludes that I'm um, putting into these uh, broadcasts. I can't uh, promise that there'll be one in every one. It depends how many I manage to record. But um, hopefully, God willing, there'll be there'll be some more. There certainly will be one more in this program. Okay, so I hope you enjoy that. Meanwhile, let's go back to Genesis. And we were in Genesis chapter 21. We were talking about uh, the faith of Sarah and the birth of Isaac. And um, the next section in uh, Genesis chapter 21 is to do with uh, Hagar and Ishmael and their expulsion from um, Abraham's household. So let's uh, have a read of that together, shall we? So we are going to be reading Genesis chapter 21 verses 8 to 21. Let's have a look at that now. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Bathsheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I shall make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So, I've made some comments on this in, in, in my book uh, about Genesis, Volume 2, and you can purchase that book from allaboutbooks.store. That's allaboutbooks.store. That's the place where you can get hold of that particular uh, book. Uh, you'll be you find it there, and you can get it in paperback form. Um, it's produced, uh, it's printed through Amazon, and uh, you can get it in um, ebook form, both as a, a Kindle book, which you can uh, purchase on Amazon, or on the bo um, website allaboutbooks.store, you can purchase uh, another um, uh, type of um, ebook, and uh, where it's basically an open source ebook, and you'll be able to get that for whatever price you feel able to pay, pay for that. So please have a look at allaboutbooks.store, and meanwhile, um, let's get back now and have a look at some of the uh, things that we understand from this passage. In my book, I have um, 
commented that there's a danger in ascribing too much simplicity to uh, this particular passage of scripture. Uh, the heading given in the English Standard Version is God protects Hagar and Ishmael. And of course that's true, God did protect Hagar and Ishmael. But it's not the only lesson from that section, and you, you've got to be careful. Uh, other v uh, translations have different headings, which again, which focus on different aspects. For example, the New American Standard Bible heads this section, Sarah turns against Hagar. So what is it? Is this a passage about Sarah turning against Hagar? Is it a passage about God protecting Hagar and Ishmael? And the truth is more complex. None of, neither of those are, in, are sufficient as a lesson in themselves. We need to examine why it is that Sarah turned against Hagar and whether that animosity was sinful or righteous. At first sight, you could say that these next few verses can be seen as petulant. Ishmael is caught laughing at Isaac, and Sarah then makes a mountain out of a molehill, demands Hagar's expulsion. Abraham's not happy about the state of affairs, but because he's a weak husband, he acquiesces to his wife's moods. By the way, I hope you don't think that what I've just said uh, is what I believe, because I don't. But that is one extreme way of interpreting this passage. But you see, we've only just learned that Sarah is now a woman of faith. The last time uh, there was a, a, a big issue with Hagar, when she was pregnant with Ishmael, Sarah was not a woman of faith, but she is now. We've just learned about her um, attitude of faith so that while she once had a, a laugh of disbelief she now has a laugh of belief which we'll mention again in a minute you see you might think Sarah can't bear to the thought of um, Hagar and Ishmael being around but you see they've been around for you know probably close on 15 years and while Sarah may not have you know been happy the last time Hagar left and then came back again i'm sure that they are used to the situation by now they have a way of living together um it sounds complex but goodness me it's not as complex as many other families would have been in that particular era or for that matter the way many families are today um it's a good deal less complex than that and a lot of the account hinges on the subject of laughter Remember, Abraham's laughter has been one of trust in God. That's the way it's always been. But Sarah earlier, as I just said, had a laugh of disbelief. But now she's laughing with faith. And we've just read that in the previous episode when we looked at that. Ishmael's laugh, on the other hand, is one of mockery. Well, it's unlikely that Ishmael and Hagar had been ignorant of events. After all, he's seen Sarah getting pregnant for nine months... And although he is a child, he's an older child, he is old enough to be able to think these things through for himself and to have responsibility for his uh, actions. So he wasn't mocking because he was being displaced. All his life he has known that there's a child of promise coming. The, ch the promise has now been fulfilled and Ishmael is mocking that child of promise. You see, he wasn't just mocking Isaac. Nor was he simply mocking Sarah, though there's an element of that too. And there's also an element of him mocking his father Abraham, but it's not just that either. The mockery of the child of God, the ch sorry, I beg your pardon, the mockery of the child of promise is actually mocking God. Ishmael was old enough to understand this, and so that mockery indicates his spiritual state. So these are Sarah's words. She says, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. 
Now note what the Apostle Paul records in Galatians chapter 4. This is how Paul uh, refers to the event. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. That's Galatians chapter 4 verse 30. Now those are Sarah's words. Of course there's a little bit of an apostolic variation which is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, um, you know Sarah describing herself there as a free woman. Um, and you know we cannot quote scripture like that but the, the Apostle Paul could under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But you see here's the, here's the important point. Sarah's words are being quoted as if they are scripture. The passage reads, What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman. The Apostle Paul is saying that Sarah's very words are actually scripture. And that means that Sarah's faith actually enabled her at that moment to speak prophetically. It was God's will for Ishmael and Hagar to be expelled, as God explained to Abraham in the next few verses, in uh, verses 12 and 13, along with a reassuring promise for Abraham that Ishmael would also become a great nation. Um, he wanted to reassure Abraham that he would be looking after his older son. Was this is not unique. There is another place in the Old Testament where a human proclamation is declared in the New Testament to be the words of Scripture. In Romans 9 verse 17, for example, we read, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. They are the words that the Lord instructed Moses to say to Pharaoh. Moses was speaking, but he was reporting what God said. But again, um, the Apostle Paul is saying that that is scripture. Those words being spoken to Pharaoh are scripture. So when we compare those, it's clear then that uh, Sarah's words are also prophetic. She's speaking God's words at that moment. And that raises two questions. Why did Hagar and Ishmael need to be expelled at that particular point? And why did God earlier command Hagar to return to Sarah when she was pregnant with Ishmael? Well, in the early event, God was providing for Hagar and especially for Ishmael. After all, it wasn't their fault that Abraham and Sarah had behaved so faithlessly with her. It was Hagar's fault, of course, that she started to despise Sarah. But still, uh, the main blame there is with Sarah and also with Abraham himself. In the earlier event, uh, one commentator uh, suggested that Hagar was being returned to Sarah as an act of submission, given that Hagar had clearly demonstrated attributes of faith. Uh, plain dutiful submission in the fulfilment of her duties is sufficient for Hagar, says Leopold. In the final expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael, we see both God's mercy and judgment. There's judgment because Ishmael was engaged in a faithless mocking of Isaac, who was, of course, the chosen son of promise. As was stated, Ishmael, though he was still a child, was old enough to understand the implications of what he was doing. Indeed, many people date the persecution of the Israelites from this point onward, and I would be one of those. So those of us who do this would suggest that this is probably the beginning of the 430-year sojourn of the Israelites, which would eventually end with, uh, with the Exodus. Abraham, in spite of his love for Ishmael, 
accepts that it's God's will and he sends Hagar and Ishmael away with provisions. But those provisions don't last them for the entire journey back to Egypt. Did Abraham deliberately shortchange them? I would suggest not. It seems that perhaps Hagar had wandered around in the wilderness near Beersheba. And the events recorded in verses 15 onwards must have been a few days after Abraham sent them away. A 13-year-old boy wouldn't have fainted with thirst to the point of death on the first day. But also he wouldn't have been able to last as long as his mother. So Hagar had left Ishmael to die, but in a grief God called to her again. God promised to make Ishmael into a great nation and he was not about to let him die. He reminded Hagar of that fact. So here we see God's mercy. God gave them more water and protected them. And then events run very fast then because we then read that Ishmael grew up and his mother found a wife for him. Well, Hagar's well is probably Beersheba because that's they were wandering in the wilderness near there. And Beersheba means well of the oath. And there were multiple oaths that happened there at that well. There was more than one oath. Uh, the first of those was God's reiteration of his oath to Hagar. But what we're going to go on to have a look at next time is the fact that there was an oath between Abraham and Abimelech. And that, I think, will hopefully tell us something about what's going to be happening about Abraham's sojourn in the land of the Canaanites and uh, Abraham's relationship with the Canaanites and how that affects um, the future that God is going to bring about. Again, prophetic words, uh, prophetic things happening in that particular event. But that's for next time. Well, in the last episode, I played you a song um, I, I I played you my interpretation of a song called Blue Eyes by Elton John. And uh, I'm going to um, sing for you this time one of my favourite songs from uh, the 1970s. And um, I, I made a, a post on Facebook about this not so long ago um, when I put the original on uh, online. Uh, and... You know, when I was um, uh, a teenager, of course, I was learning classical music. Um, but in the common room, we would listen to all sorts of other albums, progressive rock albums from the time uh, of artists like Yes and Genesis, Barker James Harvest and other people like that, um, Van Morrison. And, um, and of course, there were particular glamorous actresses that we were supposed to all be interested in as teenage boys and things. But my secret teenage crush was uh, a young lady who um, performed songs uh, accompanied by her brother. And she was really quite cute rather than beautiful. She had the face of a pretty pixie. She had the voice of an angel. And she left us much too young. So here I am singing a song by the Carpenters uh, that originally had the uh, the wonderful voice of Karen Carpenter. One of my favourites of theirs. This is Rainy Days and Mondays. Around. 
Oh